Hello, friends, and welcome to episode four of my Don't Overthink It podcast. I am Greg McCain, and it's already episode four. This one takes a little bit different tact than the other three, in that this, these are all more humorous, I hope. Of course, you're the judges of that. Uh, they are mostly autobiographical, with little fictional twists, <laughs> just to keep it interesting. Uh, so sit back, relax, remember to like, share, what else, comment, follow, so that you don't miss the the, uh, the rest of the... Uh, rest of the episodes as they come along. So, thanks again. Enjoy. The Tupelo Two-Step In the early 1990s, I worked in a homeless shelter on the north side of Chicago. From October to April, the overnight shelter was open and usually full to capacity, which was about 100 men. We were one of the smaller shelters, which Chicago had about 100, but the homeless population was estimated to be around 100,000 men, women, and children. The uh, not-for-profit that I worked for had two shelters, one for men and a separate one for women. My first December of working there, I noticed a man in the alley behind the building picking through the uh, garbage dumpsters. I tried asking him his name, but he pretended not to notice me. He jumped out of the dumpster and walked down the alley. I continued to see him sporadically outside of the shelter. Sometimes he'd be sleeping under a statue in the park. Other times I would see him panhandling outside a restaurant. But I never saw him sleep in the shelter, and he never acknowledged my presence. As December, which had been unseasonably mild, never dropping much lower than 48 degrees Fahrenheit at night, moved into January, the temperature began to drop incrementally each day. One evening when I and Daryl, one of the men staying in the shelter, were taking out the garbage, this guy was asleep in the dumpster. We didn't see him at first, and when we tossed the garbage bags in, he startled awake, jumped out, and walked briskly down the alley. I asked Daryl if he knew the guy's name. He said he didn't know him, but others called him Tupelo. I guess he must be from Mississippi, Daryl said. January proceeded along, proving to be unseasonably mild, too, with most nights hovering between 50 degrees Fahrenheit and 42 degrees. Only on occasion did it approach the mid-30s, but it was nevertheless deadly to be sleeping out of doors. As I said before, the official capacity was for 100 men, but when it got to be this cold, we allowed more people in, sometimes reaching 180 people. One cold evening, as the thermometer dropped to around 15 I saw Tupelo hanging out in the alley. He was wearing about three pairs of pants, who knows how many shirts, and two winter coats. A ski cap was on his head, and his gloves had the fingers cut off, I guess to make it easier to pick through the garbage dumpsters. I remembered that one of the other guys who slept at the shelter, Melvin, was from Mississippi. I got the brilliant idea that if Melvin got to talking to him, and they reminisced about growing up in Mississippi, then maybe Tupelo would feel at ease enough to come in and out of the cold and sleep in the shelter. I went back in, found Melvin, and told him my strategy. Melvin went out the back door to the alley while I stayed in and helped serve dinner to the 130 or so men who had shown up so far. About 20 minutes later, Melvin came back in all pissed off. He looked at me with such contempt that I, I couldn't imagine what the hell had happened. 
He didn't come to me right away. Instead, he went to where the sleeping mats were stored, got one, and found his spot for the night. I was too busy dishing out the food to, to get to him. When Melvin finally got in line to get his dinner, he looks like he doesn't want to talk to me, but I had to know what happened. Melvin, what happened? Did you talk to him? Man, Greg, don't even talk to me, he said. You must take me as some kind of damn fool. What? What'd I do? Tell me what happened. What did Tupelo say? Fuck you, Greg, Melvin said in a very loud voice, which caused the room to go quiet. Melvin, calm down. What's going on? You know damn well that man's name isn't Tupelo, and he sure the fuck isn't from Mississippi. I, I swear that's what I was told. Someone told me that they call him Tupelo. I said in a very calm and low voice, hoping that Melvin would take the cue and relax. However, Melvin didn't calm down. Just give me my damn food, Greg. Yeah, of course, but uh, you're not going to tell me what happened? Like a damn fool, I'm out there talking to this nut about Mississippi and asking him questions about Tupelo. The other men begin to chuckle as he continues. Well, it turns out he don't know the first damn thing about Mississippi. He grew up on the south side of Chicago. His mama and daddy were born and raised on the south side of Chicago. His grams and grandpa were born and raised on the goddamn south side of Chicago. The laughter grew louder from the other men. Then why the hell they call him Tupelo? He isn't from Mississippi, I said. A voice from way back in the room said, We call him Tupelo because he don't come in from out of the cold until it hits two below zero. And with that, the entire room breaks out in loud and hearty laughter. I couldn't help but laugh myself as I pile extra mashed potatoes and gravy on Melvin's plate and toss on an extra helping of hamburger helper. Melvin couldn't hold his anger for much longer. He grins, shakes his head, and gives me one more. Fuck you, Greg. And true enough, the following week, after a cold front swept in from Canada and plunged the thermometer to two below zero, Tupelo was in line, waiting for his plate of food and a warm place to sleep. Chance and change. A penny for your thoughts, a nickel for your dreams, ten cents for your complaints, a quarter heads I win, tails you lose, your dicks about it. I'll give you a piece of my own. Don't complain to me, I just worked first in, last out, sound dicks I thought you loved me. I thought you had plans and dreams. Complaining will get you more. It's the first time for every single time I've ever been dicked for a Think before you act. Dream a little dream. Walk on the water. Walk on the water. First impressions. First impressions. Last impressions. Any dreadfuls give me hope. Nickelback gives me a headache. A dime bag gives me a munch. And more. A victim gives me a quarter. Quarter suck your dick. Suck dollar.
In fifth grade, I wasn't the weird kid, but I sat next to the weird kid, Dennis Palavchek. One day he blurted out, anti-disestablishmentarianism, and the teacher sent him to the principal's office. The next day, we were reading from a book, and when it was his turn, he got to a part that had the abbreviation for etc., but he didn't say etc. Instead, he said, act, and I started laughing uncontrollably. After he stopped reading and someone else read, he just kept repeating, act, 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 and we both burst into laughter. We were both sent to the principal's office. It was that day that I found out that Principal Haskins was an alcoholic. While waiting for him to decide what to do with us, his desk drawer was open, and I saw a bottle of vodka next to the paddle he used to discipline students. He saw that I noticed the bottle and slid the drawer closed. He then told us to just wait till the next class starts, and we could rejoin our classmates. From then on, Principal Haskins gave me a knowing nod whenever we passed each other in the hallway. It's the day-to-day small things and how we deal with them that defines us, not the huge life events or tragedies that strike us on rare occasions. How we react in the face of the worst flood since Noah, or a sharknado that uproots your house and tears our children from limb to limb may change us irrevocably. Being in a 20-car pileup on the freeway that involves a petrol truck jackknifing into a hazardous weight hauler may scar us physically and psychologically. Witnessing a massacre by religious fundamentalists because they hate our something-something, God bless America, well, you get my point. Which is, let me give you an example. I lived in Honduras for several years. One day, I set out to do a simple task, make coffee. Before I knew it, a whole Rube Goldberg machine of having to do a thousand other things just to get to the brewing spiraled out of control. After a restful sleep, which I hadn't had in quite a while, I went to the kitchen and straight for the stovetop espresso maker. After such a deep slumber, I was feeling pretty good about the new day. This sleep must have included several hours of REM stage sleep and uninterrupted stage 3 and stage 4 sleep. I could actually feel my proteins rejuvenated, and two or three psychic scars that had been weighing on my subconscious had vanished. I felt such complete restfulness and rejuvenation that I was ready to conquer anything that came my way. But the malicious, self-righteous gods apparently had other intentions for me. I bound into the kitchen to seek out the coffee steamer and... No big deal, it wasn't clean from the day before. It usually isn't. So I unscrew the top and proceed to spill what I was left inside from yesterday on me and the floor. Great. I'm able to laugh at this mishap due to my reawakened zest for life from such an amazing power snooze. But the spill covers most of the floor in front of the stove, so I have to search for the mop. It isn't in the usual two or three places that it ends up in, so I look in every room and closet. Nowhere to be found. I decided it must be out on the back porch. Now I have to search for the back door key, which isn't in the doorknob as usual, and not on the hook next to the door. What the hell? I finally find it in a cup, where I keep pens and paper clips, while trying to remember how the hell it got there. I'm also thinking, why don't I just make the coffee first and look for the mop while it's brewing? Boom, multitasking at its finest. But I don't. Instead, I inadvertently dump over the entire cup, and now my pens and paper clips are spread out on the floor under my desk. Fuck it. I'll pick them up later. I go to the back porch and, aha, I find the mop. It's near the utility sink, so while I'm there, I think, why not dab some water on the coffee stains 
that are on my shirt so that it doesn't set and I'll never be able to wear this, my favorite shirt, outside of the house again. There's a hose attached to the faucet, so I attempt to unscrew it, but apparently it has been on that spigot since the Apollo moon landings because it is fused tight. So I grab the hose and start pulling it, looking for the end. It must be a 50-foot length of hose. I'm pulling on it so long. It suddenly stops and won't budge. So I go around the corner of the house looking for what it's caught on, all the time cursing Blue Streak at the vengeful gods. The hose has become entangled under a pile of tree branches that the owner of the house had trimmed a few days ago. I lift up branches, throwing them every which way to get them out of the way of the hose while trying to figure out how the fuck did it get this tangled up. I finally get it free and find the end of the hose. I now have to restack the tree limbs so, the, so as not to piss off the landlord. Not having planned to do heavy yard work, I was only wearing sandals. I step into the pile of branches and feel a sting, look down and see a scorpion pulling its stinger out of my big toe. Son of a bitch! It scurries off under the wood as I try to smash it with a tree branch. The branch has its own little branch that snags in the pocket of my shirt and the force of me whipping it tears the pocket and leaves a gapping hole exposing my left nipple. What the fuck kind of bullshit is this? I stomp back to the faucet and fucking wash the shirt now. I need to wash my hands so I turn the spigot for water and nothing. No water. Not even a drip. This is a frequent occurrence in Honduras where the water is just shut off inexplicably. Fuck it. I throw the hose down, grab the mop, and limp into the kitchen. My toe has started to swell up. I don't panic because I know that this scorpion's venom won't kill me. Luckily, there's purified water in five-gallon bottles for drinking, so I grab one and pour water into a pail. I limp to the bathroom and get in the shower. First, I wash my hands with water from the pail and then pour water on my toe. I remember someone saying that putting ice on a scorpion sting will relieve the pain and stop the swelling. I look for a towel. There's no fucking towel. I go back to the kitchen, walking slowly on the heel of the foot with the sting, leaving a trail of wet footprints behind. I open the fridge and grab the ice tray. It's fucking empty. Who puts an empty ice tray back in the fucking freezer? I grab an old tamale wrapped in plastic that looked like it had must have been there since before the Honduran military coup of 2009. I sit at the kitchen table and rub the tamale on my toe. It seems to be working. As the pain lessens, I mop up the spilled coffee. I take the coffee pot and use purified water to wash the old grounds out of it. I find the coffee grinder and shake beans into it, plug it in, press down the top, nothing. In the time that I was looking for the mop, the electricity had been cut off, another frequent occurrence in Honduras. All that, all of that fucking activity and no coffee. This wasn't a Rube Goldberg machine, it was a cascading failure. Further proof of the distological argument against the existence of our creator God. There are too many defects in day-to-day living for an intelligent design to be plausible. No, we are the result of incompetent design by gods hell-bent on fucking with us for their personal masturbatory pleasure. What? Oh, right. I'm supposed to tie it all together with my spiel in the beginning about how our reactions in the face of the words blah, blah, blah is tied to how to deal with the day-to-day blah, blah, blah. Well... I slept like shit last night, so I'm, I'm going out for coffee. Get out the vote. Dick and
There used to be, maybe they're still around. I haven't seen them in a while. A group of people who ran a con game on the buses and trains in Chicago. It was a classic shell game. One person, usually a man, would walk up and down the aisle and sit next to or in front of another person. Sometimes a man, sometimes a woman. He'd have a small board with three shells. Well, in this case, it would be three small styrofoam or paper cups. And they'd let the person try to guess which shell had a small rubber ball under it. He'd show which cup he put it under, then move them around the board in figurative fashion, and then let the other person guess. Typical shell game. They always guessed right, and he handed them $5 each time. Then he'd turn to the next passenger and challenge them to try their luck. This unsuspecting person took the challenge and lost. Tried again, and lost. Tried several more times, and was out $15 before quitting. They quit because someone finally let them in on the con. The trainer bus would come to a stop. The man with the shells and the $15 would dash out, followed by the first person who played and won each time, and then was followed by two or one or two others who had been cheering on the one who lost, um, encouraging them. They were the ones encouraging them to keep playing. It uh, became harder and harder for these group of con artists to keep up their con, as more and more people learned of it, and it was no longer profitable for the con artists. In fact, I, I recall the last time I saw this con played out. The con artists were met with an angry crowd on a bus. Before they could even set up the game, people exposed them, circled them, got close to a physical altercation, causing the con artists to flee and stay away from that bus route. Think about this parable. The next time people keep encouraging you to vote, even though you consistently lose, regardless of who gets elected. Also, it's high time we circled these particular con artists, the politicians, expose them, and find a new way to conduct our lives. After all, all we have to lose is our chains. I wasn't the weird kid in fifth grade, but I sat next to the weird kid, Dennis Polovchik. Once, in the middle of a lesson by our teacher, Mr. Wallace, Dennis held his hand up to ask a question. It was clear Mr. Wallace saw him, but was ignoring his raised hand. This went on for about 20 minutes. Dennis didn't make any noise, he just kept his hand up. He would lower it slightly due to fatigue when Mr. Wallace was at the chalkboard, his back to the class. But as soon as he would turn, Dennis shot the hand up as high as he could. Sometimes he would wave, as if saying farewell from a disembarking ship. There were a few snickers from the class, but by and large the other students were engaged in Mr. Wallace's lesson, and by this point most had grown used to Dennis's antics and understood why the teacher was ignoring him. Ultimately, Sharon Boyle, who always sat in the front of the class and was always called on by most of the teachers to read from a text or to write on the board, raised her hand. We knew that Dennis's time to shine was nigh. Mr. Wallace would surely respond to Sharon's raised hand, and once having done so, he would be obligated to respond to Dennis. It was something of an unwritten code. Teachers can't 
publicly and blatantly favor one student over another, although they often did. As long as Dennis's hand was the lone one, he could be ignored. No code violation in ignoring a lone student, especially one known for buffoonery. As soon as Mr. Wallace turned toward the class and saw Sharon's hand, he called on her, but quickly darted an uncomfortable eye to Dennis, who was in the same room, but at the very back of the class. And yes, his hand was still raised. Hi. Sharon asked her question. Mr. Wallace gave his answer. Dennis's hand was now waving like a Navy signalman semaphoring a returning fighter jet onto an aircraft carrier. Mr. Wallace, contemplating if the lesson had reached a sufficient enough point to endure the impending disruption, paused for a full seven seconds, watching. All right, Dennis, what is it? I was just wondering, do cats menstruate? The entire class, except Sharon, giggled loudly. Shh, class, Mr. Wallace said. What's that have to do with multiplying fractions, Dennis? No, I was just wondering, Dennis said through a snorty guffaw. Well, Dennis, that's a good question for the principal. You're excused from class to go to his office and ask him. Don't return until you have a note from Principal Haskins. Dennis collected his textbooks and walked to the door. The other students were holding in laughter behind bursting cheeks. Some hid theirs in the sleeves of their shirts. Dennis had conquered classroom boredom once again. There you have it, folks. Episode 4 is now in the books, or the ether, as it were. Uh, Thank you for listening. Remember to like, comment, share, follow, so that you keep abreast of all the future episodes. Um, Thank you. Thank you for listening.